is the Abaddon Planet Podcast, episode 25. I am your host, Joel Abaddon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast, something a little different. I'm going to reflect. Yeah, I mean, during this time of global pandemic, I've been blessed with a little bit of time. So calendar got cleared out with face-to-face meetings. Lots of Zoom meetings are filling those spots, but have a little bit of time to do some reflection that... I know I should do, I do do it, I just don't do it as well as I should. So really thinking about what has happened with my teaching, um, what did I not like, what I did like, what would I like to stop, what would I like to start, where do I need to learn more, all that sort of stuff wrapped up into uh, just a specific deliberate time um, to do reflection. And that's that's professional reflection, professional learning. Um, thinking about that as a teacher is something that I know if I've got a pre-service teacher or if I think about a colleague that's, you know, maybe is not starting off with the greatest of abilities, but they've got that, they've got that ability to reflect. I know that they're going to get better. I know they're going to continue to do that. I know and how much reflection has benefited me in the past. And so given this time and given uh, the opportunity to do it, Hey, let's, let's do some reflection. So I thought, Given the form of this podcast, which is learning how to teach better, why not do that publicly? Why not share that a little bit? So I've got a series of episodes I'm going to be doing. Uh, this first one is just thinking about this past year, and that's going to be with my uh, colleague, Brianna Hall. She's a graduate assistant, former student, and now a graduate assistant. She's a master's student. Well, you'll hear more about her in the episode. And we had an opportunity to teach together this past year, and so... One thing I really enjoy about Brianna is she tells it like it is, and so she's a perfect partner for doing some reflection with, and so we recorded this, and thinking about this past year and global pandemic and what that meant for our spring semester, what went on our fall semester, and thinking about basically those things I just mentioned, about what happened, what went well, what do we want to start, what do we want to stop, and those sorts of questions guide our conversation together, and so... We're going to share that. And then in the future episodes, we're hoping to have a little bit uh, wider amount of time that we're going to be reflecting on. actually got a uh, conversation with another former student from 10 years ago and who has been a practicing teacher since then. And so uh, with Brian DeSalvo. So we're going to have that conversation coming up for you in the next episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. Before we get into that conversation with Brianna, uh, I just have to say a few things about the current events that are happening within our country and just the historical significance of this moment in confronting racism. I mean, racism in society, racism in the policing of our society, and even racism in our classrooms and our teaching and our school systems. And I have to be honest and say that I've always considered myself someone who promotes equity and diversity in my teaching, but I also know that as a white Christian heterosexual middle-class male that I come from a privileged background. I mean, I always thought as a in the beginning, I, I mean, I, I kind of rested on this idea of being, you know, a first-generation college student and have, had to fight for all that I had. I worked really hard. You know, some of these narratives that you hear over and over again, but knowing still, when I look back at my schooling, I saw a lot of my math teachers, which is what I wanted to be, uh, were white males. And so having that reinforcement and knowing that if I struggled, I could always lean on that, like, hey, well, they made it. I, I People looked at me, made it. I could probably do this as well. Or just even the fact that most presidents, uh, up until recently, uh, were all looked like me. 
right? Had similar sorts of backgrounds. And when you talked about diversity of our presidents, you talked about whether they were, you know, Catholic or not. I mean, that was, you know, kind of my childhood. And so then moving down here to the University of Mississippi and thinking about the significance of racism here and knowing that in 2011, the university was the university was preparing for the 50th anniversary of the integration of campus when a, a black male, James Meredith, first stepped foot on campus to um, to take classes and just wanted to get an education. Right. Something that. I didn't think twice about it. I was, th- I was thinking about where do I want to go? Not that if a university would actually accept me for who I am. And it, just based off of my skin color, I just, I, I can't imagine that. But then in, in that preparation, you saw some of the pictures and videos of James Meredith bravely walking around in his suit to try to, you know, get into the school uh, of his home state and being turned down. And you look at the yelling faces the angry, yelling faces around him, a lot of them look like my face, right? And so, you know, just feel like this call to address that. And so to think about this idea of anti-racist pedagogy, what does it look like to be anti-racist in my teaching? So, you know, not just, you know, you hear some other things about it. Well, and actually I had an analogy that was given to me that I really like to use in thinking about, you know, society is like a treadmill, right? And because there is inherent racism uh, within society, that that treadmill is just going to push people in a, in a direction, right? Because of the systemic racism that's that's going on. And so, if you go with it, if you go with your privilege and you lean on that, and you try to use that privilege, and you try to use, um, you know, like racism to forward yourself, you're kind of running with that treadmill, right? And so you're speeding forward. And so even if you say, like, you know what? I'm not going to participate in that and just like you stand still. Well, the treadmill is still moving you in a direction, right? Systemic racism still says, you know, you're going to be moving in a direction. And so to be anti-racist means to go against that and to have a, you know, deliberate, intentional action against racism. And so I know that I need to learn more about that. And so... I'm trying to learn, I, I, I'm feeling this time is a, is a time that a lot of people, a lot of white folks are feeling is that, you know, it's not a time to talk, it's a time to listen and learn. And so I am really excited about the opportunities that my institution, the University of Mississippi, has put out there to do just that. And so in the School of Education, we are reading this book, Not Light But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations in the Classroom by Matthew R. K. And then also through um, uh, the broader University of Mississippi, there's a um, another book club on how to be an anti-racist. We're reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And I think a lot of people are reading that book right now because you can't get it on Amazon. You can't get it in your local bookstores like I like to promote. So um, I had to get the Kindle version, which um, I'll hang with because I want to read it. But usually I like to you know grab those books and, and underline them and stuff. So... So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to learn, uh, listen to a lot of podcasts as well. A lot of people are putting out some good content out there. And so, uh, and even there's a, a movie that was shown, again, through my institution, which I don't think you need just to be there. It's uh, the, the Long Shadow. Um, it's a PBS. It was on PBS. It's a movie on PBS about uh, someone from uh, Mississippi who looks back at her history and finds out that, you know, some of her uh, ancestors were a part of, you know, setting up slavery and setting up basically inherent racism within our society. And so um, 
or setting up systemic racism in our society, you know, as a, as a way of, of, of separating uh, folks. And so that was another, again, another learning experience. I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes, links to the books, links to that movie. Um, if you're looking to learn a little bit more, listen a little bit more, um, I can see some future episodes on those two books uh, coming up in the near future and hopefully find some good partners to talk about that stuff with. But for right now, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do and uh, encourage you all to do the same. So, um, bef- oh, also, if you have any suggestions for resources on anti-racist pedagogy or any other things that you think would be helpful for folks to listen and learn in order to, again, teach better, and teaching better could be teaching, uh, teaching better is, would be anti-racist pedagogy. That'd be a way to teach better or any other, other resources out there. Uh, go ahead and send them to me via joel at amazonplanet.com or you can do it via social media as well. So there we go. Got a little bit of preview of upcoming episodes. Uh, we're going to do some more reflection. We'll be talking about those two books I just mentioned, um, Not Light But Fire by Matthew Kay and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I like saying these things because now it puts it out there that I have to come back and do it. It might take some time, but we'll uh, we'll get those out there and thinking about how do we take that content and thinking about how to teach better. So Without further delay, now on to my discussion with Brianna Hall as we reflect on a year of teaching. Brianna Hall, thank you so much for being willing to join me on this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, and uh, just to be completely clear, we started this about three minutes ago, but I forgot to hit record. So fantastic. Let's let's be completely transparent here. And so uh, what we just got done talking about and what we'll re- rehash uh, now that we've hit the record button is we're doing a series of reflection podcasts or like I wanted to do a series of reflection podcasts and, and thinking about let's pause and think back about where we've been and think about how do we get better? Because I think that being a reflective practitioner is something that was uh, hammered in in my professional or my preparation as a teacher since the beginning when we had to do portfolios at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so wanted to do a series. So we're going to be talking with Brianna. Brianna is a a very important person in my life because right now we've been working together as a as a teaching team, uh, she's a graduate assistant at the University of Mississippi, and we teach, we've taught a number of courses through this uh, 2019 through 2020 academic year. And, but first, let's get a little bit of background. Brianna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, I'm from Memphis, and I came to Ole Miss in the fall of 2015. I majored in education for elementary grades, and I got Certified in K through eight, mild to moderate special education, K through eight mathematics, K through twelve science, and then K through six all subjects, which is built into the elementary education major. And now I'm back at Ole Miss. Um, I graduated in 2019 and started my master's course immediately in the fall of 2019. And so I'm halfway through that program now, and I will graduate in the spring of 2021 with my master's in curriculum and instruction. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Brianna has, and we just figured this out, The what, the fall of 2018 is when we first had a class together. Is that right? Fall of 2017. 2017. Wow. It gets... mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a junior. Wow. Okay. So yeah, at fall of 2017, you, we had a class together that was like the first kind of ed psych 
ed uh, policy class that you take in our program. And then elementary math methods, we have that in uh, the next year. And then now we've been teaching together. So it's great to, Brianna is a rock star with, with regards to being a student and now getting a chance to see her in a teaching role with teaching teachers, uh, teaching uh, early service teachers with, with myself. And that's, that's been kind of cool to see that development because sometimes you see, we see you all as students and don't get to, you know, unless we get out in the field, which uh, I never saw you in the field teaching, um, unless we get a chance to see that, then there's, there's just, there's kind of maybe a little bit of a disconnect there. So it's been awesome being able to see and interact with you, not only as a student, but now as a teacher as well. So, um, but yeah, and, and so I'm just thankful that you're now willing to come on the podcast uh, in front of the, uh, uh, in front of the microphone and say, and, and let's look back at where we were this year and thinking about the classes we taught, what our intentions were, and, and what happened. So are you ready to dive in? I'm ready. All right. So I sent you some questions and just kind of using those as a guide to our conversation and thinking back about what did we do? What did we want to do? What actually did happen? And how do we get better? And so what my first question was, what is our intention for the classes? And again, we taught a elementary math methods class in the fall, and then we taught a kind of a beginning lesson planning class in, uh, in the spring. And so, uh, and I, I guess also a little bit of background too, around spring break, well, at spring break is when our major disruption in instruction happened in the spring semester. So we, we transitioned from in-person, um, teaching all of our classes as normal, uh, where students had field experiences and stuff like that in the June, in, in, uh, in the spring semester to, the uh, after spring break, we had one week, one week break in instruction, and then we went to all online, and we finished out the year like that. So that was our, if you're wondering, that was our kind of COVID-19 sort of transition instruction. So throughout, though, going back to our original question, what was the our intention for the classes? And maybe, you know, given that you had them both as a student in the program, and then now as a instructor in the program, what do you think the intention for those two classes? Well, um, I was thinking about it a couple of days ago, actually, when I was looking through the questions you had sent. And one of the things that kind of dawned on me was I think our intention kind of changed when coronavirus hit, because mm -hmm. when I took the class, it was more of the intention was get you experience in your field placement classroom get you comfortable up in front of, you know, a class of 15 to 25 students and let you try out different teaching strategies and techniques as a junior before you go into your full-time placement your senior year. And obviously with coronavirus, they weren't allowed to go into the classroom anymore. And so as I looked back on that, I think our intent kind of switched to just teaching them how to adapt, which is, in my opinion, a very um, beneficial skill that teachers should have because whether that's a change in schedule or, you know, a, a professional development that's thrown in or a, a class or grade meeting that comes up unexpectedly, you need to be able to adapt. Your kids are never going to be exactly the same every single day. And so as I reflected, I just kind of thought about, I really think we helped them figure out how to kind of roll with things and adapt to an ever-changing situation and at, 
the beginning of the semester in January, I would have said, oh, they're going to get more comfortable in front of a classroom as a, a future teacher. Yeah, that's, that's, that is interesting. Cause I, I, know, I remember when we had the week to transition our instruction in the spring and really thinking about, well, what really matters now? And mm-hmm. for me, it, it, it came down to, we, we have a way that we um, teach on how to design instruction, right? It's, it's understanding by design. Mm-hmm. A lot of school of education, schools of education or teacher preparation programs use it. Wiggins and Matigue kind of does this backwards design, understanding by design sort of framework. And we use that. And so one of the things that I thought that, that when we condensed everything down and thought about what was essential, what was the things that need to get stripped away, it really did kind of highlight like, well, what is the intention? Yes, we do want students to get in, in comfortable in front of class doing instruction. And if we would have had from the get go that that was going to be our um, you know, the way of instruction, it was going to be all online. And we knew that that was it. Um, Cause when we did transition, we didn't make, we thought, well, maybe we can go back to school, maybe possibly. Um, and so it was just kind of a temporary sort of thing. And so, you know, having them focus in on how to design instruction, knowing that, okay, there will be other opportunities for them to get in that comfort of leading instruction. And we didn't really have a lot of space in order to do that. So it was, it, there, there was that shift. There was definitely that shift. And, and one of the things that we do in our class that, you know, Brianna had a chance to experience and something that I really feel strongly about is the best way for teachers to learn how to teach is to engage in teaching. And so a lot of the times when, you know, class is running as normal, we would have students do little mini lessons where they're taking whatever content that we're trying to cover within that, that core or that, that's, uh, session of the class and do a little mini lesson, which we help, help them design. We call them facilitations. I don't know why they've just evolved to be that way. We call them facilitations. And, uh, it, that seems like a weird word, doesn't it? Brianna, like that we call them facilitations. Like, I like mean, we... kind of, but like, I feel like people always say as a teacher, you said facilitate the learning, not, you know, control it or dictate it. So I think it kind of works. All right. Well, Hey, thank you. All right. That's good. Welcome. Yeah. And so like, you know, but, but sometimes our language in the classroom, like we, I want to do a facilitation. What the heck is that? And like, <laughs> like yeah, you're going to teach. And so, and we talk about facil- continuing to facilitate a conversation around the content. And so all of our classes had gotten experience. Every group had gotten experience doing those in the first half of the class. So it felt a little bit more, um, at least for me, it felt like in the intention that um, you know, they, they still got that experience and some of them got more experiences in their field experience. But then when we came down to it, the intention was, all right, let's design instruction, but let's back up too. let's, let's go back to the, um, uh, the math methods class that we taught in the fall. Like, yeah. I'm curious to see what your, I, I know what my intention is and I'll share it in a second. I'm curious, what do you think our intention was for that class? Um, I, I try to look at it because it was definitely different for me taking the class versus me helping as your GA teach it. Um, When I took the class, I definitely walked into it thinking I'm not going to enjoy doing like math problems every Tuesday and Thursday for an hour and 15 minutes because I didn't know what to expect from it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't know what to expect from it. You know, even though I have my concentration in math and I would say that I'm, I'm pretty good at math, um, I still was nervous about what am I going to take from this if I'm just sitting here working out an equation or something. And I very quickly realized that it wasn't so much about can you solve a math problem and get the correct answer, but can you look at how problems can be approached in different ways and translate that into your student teaching and into your future classroom. And that for me became more and more apparent as we were teaching it in the fall, just looking at how some people were very unsure of their abilities in math. And then as the semester progressed, they didn't necessarily grow to love math, but they grew to feel confident in themselves and how they could teach math. So for me, I'd say the intention is to kind of expose people to the thought that it's okay to not know the correct answer as long as you're working towards getting better and improving as a mathematician or just a math teacher. You don't have to have grown up loving math to be a good math teacher. A lot of times the best teachers are the ones who struggle with the content because they have an understanding of the difficulties that students are facing when they approach an, a problem that they're not sure about. Nice. Like that. Yeah. And, and like having that perspective around, I mean, I really like the way you put that, but just having that perspective that, you know, the only person, the only that you don't have to be the person that knows all the answers in order to lead math. And like, you know, and some people say, well, it's easy to teach elementary because, you know, a, I already I learned that a long time ago. I'm a master at adding and subtracting, but there's there is a lot to that. And, and some of it is like maybe taking away some of that. Um, it's taking away some confidence, but knowing that you don't have to have all the answers, right? It's, so it's like you know what, learning how to add or learning how to count or learning. There's so much more to it than what you think. You know, <laughs> like that you're not just you know doing flashcards and you're not just repeating numbers over and over again. There's there's so much to it. And like, there's so much richness and stuff that you can do there. And it's not just doing mad minutes or time tests or whatever like that. There's so much to it. But on the same time, like that's part of, part of the wide openness of it. Like to see like how many different ways can kids add two numbers together, looking at either using counters or using different strategies or different known facts and like all these different ways. It's kind of fascinating to see like the creativity of kids being able to come out in some of those situations. But the fact is that to go in with it, like I'm going to explore, I'm going to get an idea about what kids can do. And I'm just creating, all I have to do is create an environment for that stuff to happen. And so, you know, one of the things that we encourage and the intention is to expose students to messy problems. And so we, we talk about messy problems as kind of being those spaces where it could be you know, wide open spaces where there's lots of different ways to solve a problem, um, whether it's through different strategies or different ways of interpretation or just um, you know, different um, uh, yeah, problem solving strategies or even communication style or like modeling it or whatever. And so giving access to good tasks and uh, shameless plug on amadonplanet.com forward slash good tasks, you'll find a lot of the sources that we encourage our students to go to where these are vetted sources where you can find what does a good task look like um, and getting them exposed to those, getting them to try those out. And again, we give them opportunities to teach in our 
um, in our methods class where they're, you know, they're getting a chance to use some of these messy problems with each other uh, as a way to like try on what does it look like to teach this way. And so for me, I think it's doing exactly what you did, kind of like working on mindset. That's one thing, but then also exposing them to good stuff. Because sometimes, I mean, I know in our um, some of the courses where you do a lot of math problems uh, in with our math department, they have, was it math 245 and 246? Is that? Yeah. Those, those, yeah. those are like you take them either in your freshman or sophomore year typically. Yeah. And they're you're doing lots of math problems. And those are typically the types of problems that we're looking at. But then that was more you're doing it to learn the content. And this one, we, we're going to be in, in our class, you're doing them to learn, okay, what is it behind the problem that you do to teach it? How do we create an environment for messy problems to be successful? And we talk a lot about working in groups and we talk a lot about opening up your questioning um, and being, uh, letting students know that making a mistake is okay because mistakes are the um are the you know bricks in the road that get you towards a success you know that sort of thing and so you know that i guess that's my intention as well so yeah talking about that mindset from your perspective but then also exposing them to the types of instruction that we want them to engage in um i never told you this but i had an email from uh one of my former students who she went through the entire she kind of reminds me a lot of you but she went through my uh, uh, my methods class and kind of was one of those like you know thinking I'm like just talking sunshine or sun, you know math with sunshine and lollipops and thinking like these messy problems would never work but then she tried one out in her class and it was like in her second semester she was full-time student teaching and for some reason I don't know why she said I'm going to try out one of these messy messy tasks and messy problems in, in my math class and you know she had a lot of reluctant learners and I maybe she thought you know what could it hurt and she did it and like the she's like the hands were going up all over the place everyone wanted to share their different strategies because they all had different ways of getting at the solution and then she just like became addicted and she's like i gotta tell Emmett on this because like and she sent an email and like hey i doubted everything you said in fall semester but then when i tried it out and it was like i saw it i actually saw it and that's i think part of it is trying to a sell job of saying like hey go do this go try this stuff out within your classroom and, and see what happens yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes math so intimidating for a lot of educators, especially when they're in their pre-service programs, is because if you were taught math in terms of like this linear style where there is one way to solve the problem and there is one correct answer, I think you're a lot less confident in throwing out a messy type of problem and you kind of have to break down your former impressions of what you thought math education was in order to then like rebuild with mm. the kind of mindset that that you present in your classes and I do think that it's more beneficial for future teachers and students to have the kind of messy task type of instruction in a lot of ways versus the I'm going to write down the formula on the board that we're going to work through how to get the answer but there is no other way even if this doesn't necessarily makes sense or if it's one of those rules that expires but then later on down the road is going to confuse a student if they're solely dependent upon that rule that maybe they're taught in second or third grade that now in seventh grade just doesn't work anymore awesome okay can you give an example of a rule that expires just for folks that might not know what you're thinking about or talking about sure i mean the one that comes to my mind is spoil first outer inner last 
Oh and yeah. It doesn't always work. It just yeah. Yeah. So and then that was that's one of the more advanced ones. Or else one another one is um and it, so there's a series of articles. There's three of them uh, that some math education researchers have put together in in, uh, in through some NCTM journals, National Councils of Teachers and Mathematics. For those of you out there that are not familiar with uh, our our famous nerd organization. Um, these great articles are out there and one of them, uh, you know, is focused in on elementary. And so like one expiring rule that you have in elementary is you always subtract with the largest number on top, right? We know that that's not true. Anyone that's done a budget and you've come up with a negative number, you know, you didn't put the larger number on top. Your larger number was the thing you were subtracting. And so, or the, the biggest magnitude from zero. And so, like thinking about all these rules that expire and we expose them to, you know, these things that all these our student teachers have heard in their math career. And now we're saying like, Hey, so if you knew these expired now, what would you do if you go back? You know, what, what stands out to you? Is that how you're going to share this information or how do you shade it so that you're not, you know, basically telling a lie uh, in front of your classroom that that's what you do, but to, with all these rules that expire. So We'll post links to that in the show notes. Those are good, and they're they're free out there. That's a great thing that NCTM is doing. Is they're they've got those out there for free. So that gets it to um, what happened this year. So let's let's go back into the fall. Um, what would you say stood out to you, and when I, you think about that question, what happened this year? Well, I mean, obviously, a global pandemic is the first thing on my mind. But back to the fall. Um, I think just for me, I mean, that was my first semester as a grad assistant. And I was also really nervous. This is, I don't think I've ever like mentioned this, but I'm really young to be in grad school. Like I could have been in the grade below what I was in. So I was 21 when we started courses in the fall and almost everybody in our classes were also 21. So it just felt weird to be like, Hey, I actually need you to, um, you know, write with grammar on your assignments or turn this in on time because I felt like they were looking at me thinking, you're my age. Why are you you bossing me around? Um, I'm like, I just, you know, I got to do this to get paid. So I need you to just do what you're supposed to, please. Um, And so for the first couple of weeks, if not the first month, that was me trying to adjust to that new role that I'd never been in. And then as the semester progressed, just recognizing that a lot of them were growing in ways that I didn't think that they were going to when the semester first started. Like I saw certain individuals who I thought were going to just give up on their unit or just kind of throw it together last minute. I saw them really become motivated to use those good sources and come up with good tasks for their units. And then what they turned in as a final product was really impressive. And so that kind of just made me rethink how I had looked at things beginning of the semester, just because people were starting out uncertain didn't mean that's how they were going to finish. Mm, That's it. I, I didn't know that. I mean, like, I mean, I knew that, you know, we, we talked, we would have conversations about students and be like, Hey, you know, yeah, they're struggling a little, but then to, to have them come through and like that you'd have those, I don't know if it's preconceived notions, but um, but just ideas like, hey, this is a trajectory they're on. And then they kind of 
surprise you. That's that's yeah, that's a like that's a good thing. Stuff that would click, and it would all of a sudden it would click with them, and they were like, "Oh, I can do this." So that was cool to see. Well, what do you think? I mean, okay. So what do you think led to that? Do you think it was, um, I mean, what I really love seeing is, I mean, given your position in the program and the fact that you just had done that course a year before, sometimes people are more apt to, well, most of the time, they're more apt to come to you rather than to me. Um, mm-hmm. if, especially if there's like, I don't understand what he's you know, like, it, it's, you're just more approachable. And then that happens with a lot of the GAs and just, you know, you're just grad assistants. You're just more approachable than I am. And so, you know, seeing your interactions with them, do you think that might've led to then the way that you approach them and the way that you're constantly like, you have a high expectation for them and like holding that up and like, then they're living up to it. Like, what, what do you think led to kind of those um, change of trajectories? Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say like, yes, it was me. I, you know, I did it, but um, I do think that as they realized that maybe the expectations we were putting out for them weren't just to make them miserable, you know, we weren't sitting at home on Sunday afternoon thinking, how can we really torture these these students? How can we make <laughs> yeah. their week as difficult as possible? Like, you know, with the color coding objectives and stuff, some of them looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. Why do I have to go back and change this but then as they went through their unit they realized oh this makes sense it's actually saving me time and potential trouble and struggle to go ahead and do this because then I can go back through and see where these objectives are throughout my unit and see that they're repeating so I think part of it was just gaining that that time with us and those interactions but I also think part of it was they progressed in the course a lot of the things that we were asking of them that maybe seemed frivolous or unnecessary at the beginning of the semester suddenly started to make sense as to why we were asking them to do those things like the community walk I think a lot of them just thought that we were asking them to go through their their community where their schools were just because we needed a grade to put in a grade book rather than recognizing that that was something that we really wanted to see influence the unit that they were going to create, you know, later on in the semester. Yeah. And so just to give a little detail. So we talk about this community walk as you know, go out and it's pretty simple walk in your community, get some exposure to it. And cause the more often than not, sometimes, you know, we're in a, a fairly large school of education in a very small town. And so there's not enough placements in this town. So the place that they're living is not necessarily the place that they're getting their experience out in the field. And so by having them do a community walk, it's like it's like a minimum of a minimum of exposure to the place that they are teaching and the the place that their students live. And because you know, in the example I always give is the place that you student taught at water in Water Valley mm-hmm. is you can totally drive down from Oxford to Water Valley and never see downtown, never see where people live because you're you just go in off the highway and come right back out and go back up to Oxford and. Uh, like to get that exposure and to be able to see, you know, the murals in downtown Water Valley and some of the places people shop and, you know, where the ball fields are and everything that these students experience. And like, how can we then leverage those things within the teaching that we do so that this this unit that they're creating, this instruction they're creating is actually meant for those students. It's not just something that can be used anywhere. 
right? That's not good. Like we want it to be tailored. We wanted them to be able to see themselves in the teaching or maybe even learn something about their community through the teaching. And so that's the intent. And so I guess, you know, what you're saying is, you know, maybe um, they had to trust us a little bit, like, and, and we have to build up some level of trust that they do it. And eventually they see like, oh, that actually makes sense now. Like I can actually see like, you know, just, you know, it's like, trust us a little bit. And, and that goes like, what do you think? What do you think it is like, because we do have to get them to trust us because we do ask them to do some things that kind of step them out of their comfort zone a little bit. And I don't know, what are some things that I, I, this might go into the keep thing, uh, the keep question, like, what are some things that we're doing to kind of help them trust us? I mean, when I was in that class, one of the things, because you were obviously the professor and Sam was my GA, and one of the things that helped me was just hearing personal experiences and stories that y'all had both experienced, because for me, it was still really new. I mean, that's your first semester in the classroom, you know, full time, all day Monday and all day Wednesday, as opposed to maybe just a couple hours a week. And so... For me to build that trust, it's but understanding that y'all had gone through some of the things that I was going through and y'all had faced some of the same uncertainties. And it wasn't just you're making me do these things because the curriculum and the school of ed says you need a portfolio, but to actually do it so that I can see later on that I've grown as an educator, that I've grown as a person and I've grown as a student at the same time. So for me, it just was you know, you talk about building relationships, and I think that that makes a really big difference to a lot of the students. Yeah, some of those personal experiences and saying like, hey, these things that we're asking you to do, we did them, and now we're seeing the fruits of those things. So like, you're going to see, like, this is something that's already been tried and trust, uh, tried and true, right? That should keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what, anything else that you think stands out there? with regards to building trust or maybe even, um, well, actually let's keep going back. Um, well, first of all, is anything else stand out with regards to building trust? Um, I, for me, I just think there were always like little moments where a story would come up or, you know, they might ask a question that it's not, planned and what we were going to talk about for the day but it leads to a good conversation or it leads to a moment where you can reassure them about like what you're experiencing your experiencing in your classroom is normal you know it's not all roses and sunshine 100 percent of the time you're going to face struggles but it's how you react to those struggles it's how you adapt to them and it's how you grow from them that makes you a better teacher not just that you're facing them in general Right. Yeah. And sometimes like I remember, yeah, having some conversations with students either in in front of the whole class or even in one-on-one situations where they're seeing something that's like, hey, that's that's really different than what we're talking about in methods class. And, you know, we're talking about an equitable instruction. And here I'm seeing something that it's definitely not equitable. <laughs> like it's inequitable. And like, how do I respond to that? How do I stand up to that? How do I do things? And how do I negotiate in a space because there's lots of power dynamics going on where we're telling them they need to do something but they're in a classroom where they need to um you know someone's giving them space in order to get them experience and so i mean that's it's a tough dynamic to be almost stuck between a methods instructor and a um 
uh, a clinical instructor where in the field uh, when they're in their student teaching and like having those experiences must be hard and so helping them kind of negotiate those experiences and how do you deal with it and sometimes it might even be like you know what I know that's the experience you're having and you know that you don't want your future students to have that same experience um and then also to think like hey can we not have our students placed in that classroom in the future but yeah yeah um speaking of what about what else happened so we go to the spring semester and what happened there we already kind of talked about we transitioned at spring break but mm -hmm. we kind of do some similar things like we have them do dot conversations where they post reactions to the readings and things in a uh in google docs and then then they facilitate they do a little lesson based off that reading uh in small groups when they come back and they take turns doing that and we did that at the first half then spring break and then we go to completely online anything else that stands out to you from what happened in um the spring semester just that i really wish that they had all gotten the opportunity to do their teach live mm. i think you know obviously it's not so describe what teach live is for those that okay. don't know. Teach Live is, as far as I know, it's it's relatively unique to the University of Mississippi School of Education. Um, but it's this virtual simulation where you are the teacher. So you either get a lesson, depending on where you are in the program, you either have a lesson provided for you to teach or you have to write that lesson yourself. And you go in on a scheduled day and time and there are five students that are portrayed by, by actors somewhere else out in the universe they never really tell you where um some people think it, some people think it's florida i don't know if it's florida i don't know where they are but um you teach those students the lesson that you've prepared and they intentionally try to kind of throw you off your game and it gives you really good practice in learning how to react respond and adapt to students and to situations that you weren't necessarily expecting or prepared for yeah, like, I mean, they even go so far as to one student tries falling asleep, one student might try doing text messaging. And then there's, you know, students that are a little fidgety. There's another student that, you know, likes to give answers all the time. They all have their unique personalities. And so... What yeah, I, I had one curse. Oh, go ahead. What? I just, I had one curse in my... Uh, all right. <laughs> which was uh, definitely unexpected. So. Yeah, so I mean... I mean, some of it is like on classroom management, but the other side is like, well, how do I, it's a difference between writing a lesson and enacting it, right? And where does, where the rubber meets the road and seeing what happens there. And so having that experience and knowing that, hey, there is going to be this learning curve about how to adapt and how to use the energy of the classroom and not just go in and ask my closed-ended questions, execute a lesson, and then exit and never having interacted, never having adapted to what was given to me in the classroom. And so what's great is uh, Dr. Brady, who runs the Teach Live, also provides videos uh, of their teaching so that we can then, uh, they can, the student teachers can watch them, but then also we can watch it with them. And that's something we were trying to do in the spring, but because everyone wasn't able to do Teach Live, we only got a few of them. I think I talked through like three or four different people. I don't know, how many did you talk with, Brianna? I talked to two. One one person I talked to before spring break, and so we actually got to sit together and watch it. And then the other one, we watched it. Well, I watched it in advance, and then we talked it together on a Zoom, talked through it together on a Zoom call. Yeah, 
And usually those are pretty eye-opening like conversations for the student teacher. And the fact is like, you probably saw something that they didn't see. And they're like, it's, it's like this, uh, you're starting to reveal these lenses of what, what does it mean to look at it? Something like a teacher, because still teacher candidates are still students and they still sometimes act like students. So that's what's, you know, like, yeah, I did it, but did you do it like a teacher? Did you do it like a student? Like, did you do it? I just got my A or did I do it and get better as a teacher? And so like, you know, pointing out some things, a lot of things that I'll point out to them is like, what kind of questions are you asking? Are you asking closed-ended questions or open-ended questions? Um, did you, why are you looking at your notes the whole time? Do you not know the content going into it? And like, you know, some, like some of them are fairly simple things, but some things like get to it, like, Hey, you know, you said all this stuff. Why could you, why couldn't you just ask the question and see if they could send it? Do you think that one of those students knows the answer? I'm like, yeah, well then there's a great article I love to reference all the time is don't say anything a kid can say. And, you know, like, if, if that answer is out there and you can heart, you know, get someone to say it, why, why should you say it? And so that's, what's kind of interesting is to get them to start, start thinking in a little bit different ways through those experiences. So yeah, that's, that's tough that we didn't get a chance to have everyone get a conversation with us about teach live. Cause that, that's kind of a, it is again, a unique experience that they get to do, but they all, I think about half probably got to do it. I believe maybe more, I don't know, but a yeah, number of them. Sure. Um, okay. So we had that, we, we had the teach live experiences. What, anything else happened in the spring besides, uh, again, global pandemic? I mean, that's, that's the one that sticks out the most to me. Yeah. Well, and also to, I guess when we transitioned to online, what we did was created online modules that walk through the understanding by design sort of planning process where everyone is developing their unit. And then something that we did is split the class in half and basically had one-on-one -on -one conversations at least once every other week, which was, I think, really helpful. Like, I really, really like that. I mean, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think they would have been... Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was, what, do you, what did you, what'd you think about those? I thought they were really helpful. Um, I can't imagine personally having to write, because this was their first UBD. This was their first unit. I can't imagine having to try to navigate writing the first unit online, you know, through Zoom classes and things like that. I, For me, my junior year, I really needed that in-person instruction. It's what helped me kind of understand each component of the UBD. So I think that without the one-on-one -on -one meetings, I'm really not sure what would have happened. I think we would have had the majority of the classes be quite confused because there were things that even though they're said in the modules that we created and they're explained, you know, in a reading or an online resource, they weren't clicking until they heard, you know, either myself or you say, no, you need to do this. Like, think about it from this perspective. Don't focus on any other part of it. Just like work on your objectives right now. Don't think about what activities you're going to do or, you know, how right. you're going to have a performance task. Just focus on your objectives. You know, find the DOK level because we require them to put that for depth of knowledge. And once you get those honed in, that's when you can start 
building out from there, a lot of them, I think, would have tried to kind of do rough drafts for the whole thing at one time instead of, for me, I think it's better to have each part be solid and good before you try to move on to the next section, the next phase of the unit. Because if, you, if your objectives aren't solidified, if they don't fit the content and the standard, you don't need to write a lesson plan for them because they're not going to work for what you're saying you're going to teach. Yeah. It was almost like we're watching, uh, one of the things we're watching as a family, or my wife and I are watching is like an old season of The Amazing Race. And like, have you ever, did you ever watch The Amazing Race, Brianna? I did. I used to watch it. Yeah. So like how they have to go through those checkpoints, you know, they have to do the one thing before the other. And it felt like the, the students that were successful kind of did those checkpoints, right? They, they didn't get ahead of themselves. Mm -hmm. You can't go ahead and do the next part of the race until you do the one that's right in front of you. And those that did that, like they solidify, all right, I know what standard I'm going to teach, you know, from the standards for teaching that they have for the state of Mississippi. And then from that standard, they broke it down into objectives. And that was like the next checkpoint. And then from there, let's design our assessments. And that's, we do that next to say like, okay, what's going to show that they've got evidence of learning these things. Let's do these assessments. And now we go in to write a lesson. It's almost like, well, what's going to be the things that I'm going to do that's going to lead them to perform well on these assessments and the, again those assessments could be traditional tests or quizzes but we also have them do a performance task something sort of authentic that they have a rubric in order for evaluating and it's really kind of neat when you get to that point because you have something like they're designing an assessment and they say hey this assessment does these objectives and then you could look at the assessment and say how in the world are you like let's say defining these terms you never ask them anything about definitions or there's there's nothing in there that would cause them to even recite a definition or you know use them or whatever and it's like oh like oh the the assessment has to actually match the objectives i it's it seems silly but like you'd have these like aha moments where you're like oh okay <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. you have to like literally point it out when you say it before like yeah those should be in alignment and you, they nod and smile and like no questions about it but the actual one-on-one -on -one session where you can actually point that out it, where it's in context they have thought about that assessment they have thought about those objectives and now they get to see that when they put them side by side they do not match and it's like okay now how do i make them match right how do i you know adapt them and how do i do that and so walking them through that process it's like that's so valuable when i think sometimes and, and this is my own, on my own teaching like sometimes it'd be like yeah yeah go do that and they go off and do it and we didn't have as intensive one-on-one -on -one sort of interactions and so when they come back and it's not done it's, and i'd get upset and it's like well how did i help that how did i structure that how could i have been better about that rather than just sending them off and i think we really saw that from uh, from the the fall semester which we're seniors and the junior semester so the fall semester was seniors and a lot of them are interacting with you around their units and you probably talk to people over and over and over again around their units oh, yeah. versus in the spring it felt more systematic and more well shared too amongst us as well so i i think it seems like that the way we did in the spring seemed much much better I also think it was helpful that in the spring, this was their first exposure to a UBD to writing a unit, whereas in the fall, they had already gone through their junior year. So they had written that one in the spring of junior year. And so a lot of them came into senior year with the mindset of, 
well, that's not how we did it last year. Or, you know, I thought that my assessment in my junior year UBD was good. Why can't I do it the exact same way for this UBD that we're doing in our methods class? And it was kind of having to say, like, it, it was good for your first unit, but you should be working to get better. <laughs> yeah, and let's get it better. doesn't it doesn't fit what you're trying to do now. Like you've got to, you know, again, adapt. I really feel like that's a keyword for both courses, but so kind of in the same way that we had to break down the, the walls and the mindset of just because you learned math in a static way of one equation, one answer, and that's it. Doesn't mean that's how math should be taught. We kind of also had to do the same thing with the UBD saying, just because this is how you did it last semester, like don't narrow your focus to only be able to think about, well, this is what I did last semester and these are the resources I use. You know, we're asking you to find good sources. So maybe expand your horizons a little bit in that area or, you know, just different parts of the UBD, stuff like that. Yeah. And the, uh, with the um, metaphor that I like to use is uh, I think it's metaphor um, is the, uh, the, the, the places where they go to find the, the, the good tasks, right, is the, uh, the established restaurant versus the place that they Google because they, you know, they just Google the standard and find some random blog or something that has a math task like, oh, that looks cute. And they've got a nice, you know, like a, you know, it's a pretty worksheet that goes along with it. And it's like, that's like the sushi card on the corner, right? You don't know, <laughs> unless you've been here for a long time and you've got experience, you don't know anything about that sushi cart. You want to go to the established restaurant to eat sushi and not just some random cart, right? And so having them, yeah, expand their horizons and find good stuff in order to use and, and yeah, convincing them that you need to be flexible, you need to adapt. Because also too, what we're preparing them for is if, you know, a lot... I mean, our, our students get hired. That's what's great. Well, when they get hired and they go to some place that's, you know, and they're like, hey, here's how our unit plan. And like, that's great. We don't do it like that here, you know, or here's the, the way that we do it and you need to adapt. And it's like, if all we teach them is not the process and, and is we just teach them how to just do this, the same process over and over again, then we're kind of setting them up for disaster. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. All right, so let's get into the final three here. So something to keep doing, I'm going to say something to stop doing, and what's something we need to start doing? So let's start with keep. What do we need to keep doing? For, for me, in the class that we taught in the spring, I think we need to keep having them work on a group UBD. Um, I think if we started it, you know, maybe the second or third week of class, we could get them through a completed unit as a group before spring break. And then that way, when they go on spring break, they've got that experience, you know, they didn't complete it entirely on their own, which is, is totally fine, but they've seen what each step of the UBD looks like. So when they go to write their own, maybe some of the confusion or the misconceptions that were created by them being on their own, working independently away from the classroom this semester won't be there when they're, you know, working on their five or 10 day unit independently. Yeah. And I think would say also keep doing it with regards to the, um, 
hey, today we want you as a group to be done with, you know, yeah, you're standard selected. You got your objectives broken down, like walk them through like the amazing race sort of perspective and like almost set them up. Like, cause I, I think we were like, hey, let them go at their pace and then see where they're at versus like, no, 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 you should be done with this today. Cause I think sometimes, you know, they're, they're good students. A lot of times the, you know, the, the, those that want to be teachers, we're good students. So they want everything to be perfect. And it's like, you gotta be perfect. That's great, but you've got time constraints too. And you just need to, it, it, you're not even going to know if it's good until you actually try it. So you're going to have to just, let's, let's, let's get done with this stuff, right? So keep going with the group unit. We could also do that in our math methods class too, don't you think? Yeah, group I think unit. Because so. again, getting them to adapt, get in to find good stuff and walk through that process, that could be good. Um, I would say also to the checking in one-on-one, -on -one, like almost mandatory, like once every two weeks, especially once we get into having them develop things or, you know, sort of the final project sort of perspective. Like, I think those one-on-one -on -one check ins like mandatory to see where they're at is, is good as well. Cause you know, you hear something or you, I mean, you might learn something about, Hey, there's struggles in their personal life. So, Hey, how do you navigate that versus, you know, just there's questions that they, they wouldn't come up to you and ask. It just provides an opportunity. And so, I don't know. What do you think about keeping those one-on-one -on -one check ins? I definitely think that they were helpful. Um, and we could even do them to where it's not necessarily a Zoom meeting or something, but where we have, after the group has facilitated, like there's, you know, 10 minutes or something. Um, maybe for like the last 30 minutes of class, you could have three meetings, like with me or something. And they come up and just kind of talk through their progress and where they're at. Because one of the things with the Zoom meetings was just that not only are they online, but with class being online, it was sometimes hard to track people down and to get them to show up to the meeting. And so, you know, once they're out of our site, sometimes it's like, oh, I don't actually have to go to that. So there's some people that I think would really benefit from a one-on-one face-to-face -on -one -face type of mm -hmm. meeting because it's a lot harder to avoid us if they've been in <laughs> class and they're supposed to meet with us. Yeah. Can't really get out the door versus if they were supposed to show up to an online class, but didn't, then they don't show up to the online meeting. You know, if they didn't do those two things, are they going to really care to respond to an email? Maybe not. So like the face to face, like I see you, I know that you are here. What progress have you made? Do you have any questions? Right. I think could be beneficial to some people. Yeah, well, then maybe it's just being open to, hey, we'll have some online, we'll have some face-to-face, -face, and, you know, whatever works best for some, like, oh, I guess, you know, you didn't sign up for an, uh, online, so I guess we're meeting face-to-face -face today, so, you know, if, if we have them available. I think that also goes, um, okay, so yeah, let's keep doing. Um, what do we want to stop doing? Hmm. I don't know. Um, the one thing that stands out to me that I feel like people have struggled to complete both semesters in the fall and the spring would be the readings being due Monday at noon and Wednesday at noon for some reason. Like it just with some people, it, it never clicked. So I kind of thought about, I wonder if we could do it to where they were due, like both sets were due Wednesday at noon or something. So they just had one due date for the readings and responses to remember each week. Um, and then like for the facilitation, 
they wouldn't necessarily have that feedback to go off of. But I'm not sure how many times the groups this semester were really utilizing the feedback from the reactions and extensions. So maybe just cutting down on the, it should be due Monday at noon and Wednesday at noon because for some reason it just never got through to some people, yeah. no matter how many times I said it or sent an email about it. Like, hey, yeah, and so like what we're saying is like we had these readings, it was basically kind of the daily work of the class. And so these readings would then, in, they would react to them in a, doc, in a Google Doc, and then they'd also do an extension where they would go, oh, this reading made me think of something. I want to go find that answer. I want to go find a resource that can help me answer that thing. Or, you know, it made me think, like, I want to share something that I heard from my field experience or whatever. So they have reactions and extensions, and then they would have, um, we would have the facilitations that would be the mini lessons based off each reading on Monday, um, on Tuesday and Thursday, our classes on Tuesday and Thursday. So in order to have the information, we would make the readings due on Monday and Wednesday. And so... As I'm saying this, and as Brianna just explained, it's probably complicated. So if we just said, hey, all the readings are due Monday at noon for the week, that probably makes sense. Even though it's way before the Thursday class, we simplify it down to one due date. They, it's really clear. It's like, I've got to do my readings on Sunday, or I got to do them whenever to get them to do on Monday. It also, for our seniors, it clears up their week. So, because they're, they've got field placement on Monday and uh, Wednesday. And so just saying like, hey, you're gonna be busy anyway on Wednesday, you might as well get it done beforehand. So maybe by design, we can help offload some of that work and say, hey, you're gonna have all your readings done beforehand and then you won't have to worry about them during the week. Oh, that's, that's not bad. That's a good thing. Especially because I feel like it would be the ones that were due on Thursday that really kind of got the short end of the stick because we would have class on Tuesday and Thursday. So the ones for Tuesday were due Monday at noon, but they had had Thursday afternoon, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday morning to get the Tuesday ones done. But when they would leave class on Tuesday, they would go home and forget about it. Then they would student teach on Wednesday. Wednesday at noon would come before they knew it, and then it would be late or they would forget about it and oh, there were some people that if they missed the deadline they just would throw it out altogether and not do it even though what we were asking them to read would have been beneficial to their learning yeah absolutely and then also then reduces the times that people have to you know because we would have them help check on that uh, check on or mm -hmm. do a checklist of the uh, who did it or not and then that would help inform also, what did people struggle on? So they could kind of take an assessment of, you know, what were people talking about in the doc conversation? So that would help other things as well. So that's a, that's a good one, Brianna. I like that. You know, and and this is the thing. It's not like that it's been the first semester or first time that people struggled with the uh, midday or midweek due date. And it's like, why don't we actually do something about it? So that's good. Well, let's, let's, let's do that. And then I'll just we'll have an explanation if like, hey, why do we have to do this Thursday reading way before? And it's like, well, this is why. Okay. Um, anything else? Stop. So what really stood out to me from the 353 was looking at like what was actually important. And I think I kind of want to take that same perspective in the fall because who knows what's going to happen in the fall and thinking about, yeah. well, what is the actual important stuff? If, if we had if we're going to do the same thing, like we started in like halfway through the semester and all of a sudden we have, we're going to leave, which, you know, could happen. 
and stay home for instruction or maybe it's vice versa we're home and then we come together in October I don't know who knows right now um what does what is the essentials to online instruction look like or what's the essential part of uh our instruction so I think you know we stopped some assignments in our spring and is to look at basically three uh the math methods class with that same lens and think about what's important if if we had to turn around and turn this into modules and what would i take out and like question myself well if i could take it out for that is it really important does it need to be in the course and so i don't really have an answer for it but it's just uh of what specifically to take out but to think like if we had to do that what would i want to take out and so that means like is there something that's busy work? And, and we've done that before. I mean, given that you took the class uh, uh, two years ago, that we've talked about that with regards to, hey, this assignment, we're going to take that out. Like, that seems like busy work. And we've done that. And we were different than other uh, sections of the course and maybe got a little bit of trouble for that. But anyway, we took something out and it was like, they were like thankful. They were thankful for it. The fact that they weren't doing this busy work that other folks were um, and really trying to focus in on that. And so maybe, maybe there's more of that sort of thing that we can take out. Cause we know that that senior year, that senior fall semester is, is tough, is a tough one. There's lots going on. Mm -hmm. um, so what do we want to start doing? So something new, what do we want to start doing? What's that? This could be, oh, I was just, I was thinking about like, I feel like a lot of people have had, I, I don't want to call it trauma, but I don't know what else to call it. I mean, I've never experienced anything like this pandemic in my lifetime, and I hope I don't experience another one anytime soon. And I just feel like for a lot of people, um, it wasn't so much the struggles academically to get through, but it was the struggles emotionally or mentally to get through yeah and i know that senior year is really difficult for a lot of people um if they don't take the two methods courses in the summer they're student teaching all day monday and wednesday then they're in class from eight to four on tuesday and thursday and then they do have friday off but they're doing their work it's it's not a laid-back kind of semester for them so i kind of was thinking about when I student taught, we would have them journal their feelings. And yes, they were first graders, but just like that kind of cathartic release of you can write down how you're feeling. It's not going to be looked at by your university supervisor in your portfolio. It's just literally you had a bad day student teaching. You're having a bad day with this or that and give them maybe like five minutes at the beginning of class once a week or however often we want to do it just to write down their thoughts and their feelings and any concerns they might have about the class in general or about senior year. Um, and then if they want those thoughts and feelings to be looked at, read and responded to by us, they can leave them with us. And if not, they can take it with them when they go. That's good. Yeah, that's definitely something. I, I know my friend, Jen Wolf down in Arizona, she does a lot of check-ins. She does like a uh, teaches math content courses um she does that well and i could check in to see with her see what she does with check-ins i like the journaling idea too um 
and see what she does for her check-ins because that's that's something that's important to me i mean like i'll do little stump speeches in front of classes sometimes i talk about mental health because i know that's that's something that's been really beneficial for me lately is you kind of paying attention to that you know getting over the uh i'm tough and i can take care of myself and i don't need any help to you know what we could all use a little help and so that's definitely, I like that. The social is, especially we saw that in the spring, right? Where, you know, Hey, people had time, people had stuff, but they were still struggling and it wasn't, if there was some other things going on, obviously this other stress is going on where you're worried about your family. You're worried about yourself. You're worried about the, your job and uh, you know, what's going to, or you just even worry about like the world, you know? And so one thing about the center, there's the center for the healthy mind at the university of Wisconsin. They do some research with regards to, um, mental health of teachers because they know good healthy teachers are going to lead to good healthy students and so helping our students or helping our student teachers be able to take care of themselves is going to be beneficial not just for them but for their future students awesome i like that um one thing oh go ahead oh i just was gonna say i think it's a lot easier sometimes for people to write something down than to say it out loud because if you i think a lot of people view it as it's a weakness and it's not a weakness at all, but if you are able to write it as opposed to having to like approach you or me and say, this is how I'm feeling. And you can just have, you can hand us a sheet of paper with it written on it. It kind of provides that protection for some people that I think would be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you want to like, you know, you see someone that's not doing their work or doing something like, Oh, you know, you're having these other thoughts about like, why are they not doing their work? And then why are they like, don't they care about this stuff about and like, yeah, maybe they really, really care. And, but if they're such in a place where they can't even respond and send an email or reach out to something, but as soon as you open the door and you say, Hey, this is the space for this to happen, for this communication to happen. And all of a sudden, like, it just becomes really easy to take this piece of paper where they poured the, out their heart and slide it over to you. Like, mm-hmm. I really like that idea, Rihanna. That's, that's a good one. See, this is, if nobody listens to this episode, I know that I've got like a list now of things. This is great. So for My me, oh, good. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thanks to mom. Um, one thing I want to do is uh, I'm reading a book and you can't see it because we're, uh, you're in the boonies and we want our audio connection to be pretty good is, um, I'm reading a book right now called Not Light But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations in the Classroom. Um, one of our graduate students is leading a book club for the summer, and we're talking about this book. And, I mean, given the the events of this week, I mean, the, you know, we're, we just, this is Wednesday. Yeah. Yesterday was Blackout Tuesday, and where people were pausing and social media and things like that and talking about the the murder of George Floyd and, like, what does that mean for us as a society? What tipping point have we got to? And I think that we just need to be more bold. I'll say it, bold in having these conversations. One of the things that we'll do at the beginning of our 403 class, our, our math methods class, is have people draw a mathematician. And a lot of time they're drawing me. And, you know, a lot of time the class is, is full of white middle-class female, just like yourself. And, like, but we're teaching to classrooms that are represented by more than just us, right? Then that the classrooms that we're teaching, it don't necessarily look like the classrooms that we are teaching teachers in. And so what does that mean? How do I have to open up? What do I think like, does it mean to be competent in mathematics? What does it mean to uh, address, um, 
address some of these issues that need to be there. And like, as you can hear, like I'm struggle with my words and like, so how do we talk about that? Well, cause, and, and that's why I'm reading the book and, but just thinking about how do we, how do we address these things so that we as teachers can be an answer uh, and, and not part of the problem? Yeah, I definitely think you shouldn't avoid something just because it makes you uncomfortable. You know, I don't have the right words to talk about it right now, but just because I don't have the words doesn't mean that I shouldn't talk about it. It doesn't mean that it's not important and worthy of being discussed. And I think a lot of people kind of shy away from conversations about race because it is one of those things where you don't want to say something offensive. You don't want to say something that could be misconstrued. And so it's easier for a lot of people to just say, well, I don't feel, you know, prejudice or, you know, racism towards people. So I don't need to have that discussion, but you really do because you're going to be in a classroom full of students who are of all different races, backgrounds, ethnicities, religions, and you need to be prepared to have those discussions because, I mean, there's a lot of children out there right now who know what happened to George Floyd. And if they were in the classroom, there's a, a huge possibility that they would ask their teacher, you know, why it happened or what could they do. And if you're blindsided by that, you might not be as equipped to have, you know, a good and appropriate response. And it might kind of take, take you aback if, if you haven't thought about those conversations and had them as a pre-service teacher. So yeah. I think that's important. Well, and something that some work that I've been involved with, uh, they started talking about, we, towards the end of it, we started talking about anti-racist pedagogy and what does that look like? So anti-racist teaching. And so you think about it, like society as it is, as it's set up, you look at the inequities that exist. It's like a treadmill, right? And it's going, going in the way towards like, whatever, white supremacy or racism, right? And so if you just, you can go with that and I'm, I'm gonna be, you could be you run with it and that's being racist is going with the flow and keep going, like that's one way. Or you can say like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm neutral, right? So that means you stand still on the, on the treadmill. But what does that still mean? You're still moving in that way, mm -hmm. right? You're still by inaction and saying, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do anything. Like I'm not racist. Like, yeah, you might not be, but you're still within a society that's has racist things within the structures that right. exist in it. And so then anti-racist means I've got to go against it. I've got to act. I've got to do things. And so one of the things I like about blackout Tuesday is like, let's learn. It's about learning. It's about being quiet. It's about learning. So it's about reading books. It's about listening to some things. Like there's a podcast uh, that I listened to today from the Bill Simmons report. It's on, Oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but um, he was a former math teacher and he's putting together some data on certain practices. I think there's eight practices or eight policies that if police forces adopt them, they're just statistically shown to get better. And, the, and by being getting better, like less violence towards black men, yeah. or, uh, people, African-Americans. And so th that seems to be like, okay, there's some things that I can promote, right? There's some things that I'm learning already and already seeing like how mathematics is a part of that. And so what does that look like in my math methods classroom? I don't know yet, but I, th I think it's something that we just can't ignore anymore. We, teachers are so yeah. powerful. We have an opportunity to do it. So like, why, you know, why are we shirking that response? Or why am I, I'm not talking about we, why am I shirking that responsibility? I need to be, um, I think there were some things that I was doing, but I think I need to do more. And so that's, I'll put it on myself. I need to do more.
I think we did pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I thought yeah. it was good. Yeah, I got to not gotta, to like brag, but I thought my ideas were really great. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, so this is um, Brianna is one of my favorite people. Like she's always honest. She's always someone that's willing to share. And I was just really glad that Brianna, that you were willing to come on and, and try this little different uh, type of podcast episode with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if only your mom watches it, it's a, it's a thanks to your mom for listening so far. So, you know, she'll really appreciate the shout out. So mom, if you do listen, you got to get to the end to get your shout out. But there you go. I mean, that's your reward. So. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Brianna. So glad that Brianna was willing to join me on the podcast. Uh, she, again, she's, uh, she talks about how young she is and there's a lot of wisdom, uh, in her, uh, in just her <laughs> short amount of time here on this earth. But, uh, she's, uh, she's a great partner to have with regards to teaching. And I'm so glad that she is, uh, chosen to do her, uh, her education, further her education here at the university of Mississippi. And I've had a chance to, uh, teach with her. It's, it's been a pleasure and looking forward to doing it another year. And now after having done this reflection and thinking about what we can do to improve our teaching going forward, I think we're going to have a really good shot at, doing some really good stuff this next year, especially, you know, again, thinking about all the different ways we need to adjust our teaching and thinking about uh, resiliency and thinking about how do we best support the learning that's going to go on. I think this, what we did here in this episode is, is going to help us do that. So I'm glad we did it. So that is all I have for this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can subscribe to the Amazon Planet Download, which sends out resources like some of the things I mentioned at the early part of the podcast, some of those books. I, I've The Not Light But Fire book I've mentioned in a uh, recent um, uh, sharing of the Amazon Planet Download. If you want to do that, you can join the email list by going to AmazonPlanet.com. Uh, there's a link at the top, link throughout the pages to uh, join the email list. You can also do it via the Amazon Planet uh, Facebook page as well, So, which you can also follow that, follow the Amazon Planet Facebook page. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all at the handle at Amazon Planet. You can also check out the Amazon Planet store or the Amazon Planet bookshop with links in the footer at AmazonPlanet.com where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. Again, if you're looking for show notes for this episode, you can go to amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 25. There you will find all the different links that we mentioned here today uh, on the episode of the uh, of this podcast. And, um, and hopefully if we get some resources shared, I'll keep adding those to uh, that page as well. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. Thanks to Brianna Hall for sharing her time and observations on this year in teaching. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.